0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the UK Airshow Review podcast, the podcast we started when we had no airshows to review. My name's Sam Wise, you'll know me on the UCAR forums as Wisam 24 and joining me from the regular podcast today are...
1: Tom Jones, Tommy on the forum. Domino Victory, Dom Victory on the forum.
0: Um, joining the three of us today is Dave Walton, who is a Flying Display Director. Um, he's been involved with airshows quite literally all around the world, from the Middle East to Australia... He's um, been involved with the Red Bull Air Races, as was, sadly, of course. Um, uh, and actually been involved closer to home as well at REAP uh, in years past. And is the director of TSA Consulting is Air Display Management. Um, and we'll go into detail on all of that later on. Thank you very much for joining us, Dave. Pleasure. Um, so you're a flying display director. Now, any air show enthusiast and you know, many air show goers... Will probably be very familiar with the term. It's definitely something they'll have heard on a weekend and read in a program. But it's probably a term, certainly a role that I would imagine a lot of people don't, strictly speaking, know what it involves. So maybe you could just explain to us what it is a flying display director does.
2: Yeah. So essentially, we um, we are the people who are entrusted by the event organizer. To run the flying display and all the aircraft operations, essentially. So, um, and and we're the people who, in in the civilian world, hold the CAA permission, um, and in the military world, um, we have the authority from the military aviation authority to run the flying display. Um, so, essentially, the main role is is um, is safety. You know, keeping an eye on, on the safety of the flying display, but also putting that flying display together. Um, and it can be you know, small shows like um, Silverstone Grand Prix, which is one that I, I get involved in, that's just me on my own, um, stood on the roof of the old pits with Red 10. Um, and at Riat, you know, that's a massive team of of several FDDs all working together to, um, to to cover the massive amount of work they've got to do. So it does vary depending on, you know, on what we do. And and
0: what what are the the sort of the specific roles that you'll do throughout today what, what, what were the, the tasks and the objectives of flying display director be across I suppose not just even just the air show weekend itself but the entire organizational process
2: so I mean again it varies depending on which event and um, and the scale of that event but um, for you know for me for most of my shows um, my year effectively starts about now when we bid for the military aircraft so we, we bid to the, the UK military for um, display assets um, and then from from now on not in a normal year I would be you know going to all the meetings with the event organizer with the emergency services um, and then you know when we get into the um, into the new year we would normally do the fun stuff like booking the civilian acts and uh, and putting the flying program together um, and then on the day obviously the week of the show <clears throat> I go there with my team which is flying control committee members uh, air traffic controllers and we'd actually you know run the show on the day
1: how do you balance um your uh, air show year i um i think tsa consulting do an, a number of um events um do you guys sort of have an allocation each year or do you sort of do you take the lead and then disperse that within the team or how do you sort of balance multiple shows on different dates
2: yeah so um so i'm the, the originally when we formed the company back in In two thousand and seven, there were three of us. There were three directors, and who all FDDs. And gradually, you know, my business partners have have both retired now, so it's just me on my own. Um, So I basically run the company full time, and I I do the bulk of the planning and and the liaison. Um, I've got um, some other FDDs, qualified guys who work for me. Some of some names will be familiar to you, who are ex display um, display pilots who now um, do FDD work for me. uh, and they're they're qualified at various tiers because we've got tiers now in um, in FDDing. um and so those guys can actually go out and do events for me, um, and can pick up the reins as we go through the season. But I do the bulk of the planning and the bulk of the work on it. So when you're planning shows for let's say next year, and you're putting out your request for military participation, do you do a blanket? This is events I'm doing. We, which ones can you attend, or do you do it on a, an event by event basis? Yeah, so for the for the UK military, we bid to the, the RF Events Team, Joint Helicopter Command, and the Royal Navy, um, and and that's a specific request per show. Um, we have to give them details about the crowd size, what benefit the military are going to get at from turning that turning up there. So, um, okay. you know, we're we're telling them what the crowd size is, you know, what the um, what the content's going to be, what other activities going to happen, so that the defence recruiters and the defence PR people can can judge. You know the the value of the event, um, uh, and so we, yeah, we, and we we request what airplanes we want. So you know, some events, some smaller events, might only want the Red Arrows, or they might only want a BBMF fly past, and obviously the bigger shows will request everything. Uh, and you know, the, the shows like React and Cosford, those with an airfield, will bid for static aircraft as well. Um, and then for the foreign military, you know, you've heard on previous editions from um, from the React guys about. Visiting embassies and things, and and um, contacting the embassies in the UK to request overseas participation. So, um, you know that's what we get involved in, of letter writing and liaison with them.
0: Are you ever surprised by, well, whether it's a yes or a no? I mean, do do you ever go in pretty confident that you're going to be able to get X, Y, or Z, and maybe it does happen, or maybe it doesn't happen?
2: Well, I think you know because of the the big shows. That we do, so you know, um, most of our shows are the big seaside shows, so the Bournemouth, Eastbourne, Swansea, Southport, Sunderland, um, those kind of events, Um, and you know they've got a pretty good track record going back, you know, some of them up to thirty odd years. So, Mm. and they've got a they've got a fixed place in the calendar. You know, they're well known, established events. So, we would normally anticipate, um, you know, hopefully getting, um, getting the bulk of the the military assets Um, these days as you'll as you'll be aware you know most events most weekends have more than one show on so increasingly it is it is very common and very standard for us to have to share assets with other events and that's just become that's that's life now you know very few shows will get well i mean even react have to often send the reds off to silverstone um to display or whatever you know so um sharing is a fact of life now um and then you know the other thing that happens is overseas tours or you know higher priority events so um you know if there's a fly past uh, or something significant that happens obviously you can lose assets so we never um, we never bank on getting anything it's always a bonus you know when you do mm. and, and when you get a really good allocation um, yeah that's fantastic but you know ha- having said that that is a massive effect on the budget for the event if you know if you think if you suddenly get the Red Arrows for four days at Bournemouth and the Typhoon for three days and the BBMF you know if you get everything that's That's probably it's great because we want the reds but that's probably you know a quarter of my budget a third of my budget gone straight away Sorry.
0: i remember i remember we i can't remember if it was the forum or it was just our, our chat group but we found a um was it a price list or, or yeah probably probably a better term for it for the, for the military acts that you available for air shows to request and we i think we found it kind of staggering how expensive they are considering that it's Recruitment and yeah, it, it it's very much for their benefit as much as it is for the air show.
2: And and the the way those you know and, and this is this is not you know, not technical. You, you'd have to speak to the events team, but you know the basically how those work is that the flying's all paid for out of the defence budget. You know the Red Arrows are an established team, and and that money's allocated from the defence budget. So the cost that we pick up as as display organisers is the additional cost of them not working a nine to five Monday to Friday week, basically. So mm-hmm. you know, so that is that is them reclaiming the cost of sending the red arrows away the trucks the, the diesel bowser the hotels that kind of stuff so that's how the financing works. it's a bit of a dark art and nobody really knows <laughs> it's all kind of arrived at, but, but yeah that's that's pretty much how it works and you know and interestingly going back you know with it, for a little a little react story you know back when i worked at fairford um the 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 pricing's done on the number of seats in the aircraft so basically um, it's, the, it's the TNS costs of sending a jet away or an aircraft away. So um, I'm not. It, it's obviously not on the list anymore. But the Tucano static used to be priced the same as a, a Viking glider static, um, and the Viking glider used to rock up behind a Land Rover through the main gate, and the Tucano used to fly. And so it, was, it always baffled. You know, if the air cadets wanted to bring two Viking gliders, suddenly we're paying. You know. Upwards of a thousand quid.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's the same as a Tucano Yeah, yeah,
2: that is nice. So it is. It is. It's always been. It's always been a bit strange. Yeah.
1: So talking of your um, time at at Riyadh or I suppose slightly before we get there, what was your journey to becoming an FDD?
2: Well, so uh, it's strange, a strange journey and a bit long and complicated. Really. So my my involvement with air shows and and particularly Fairford goes back to the actually to my to my dad who was a volunteer at Fairford in the. Um, in the seventies, I remember you, had, you know you had a, 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 a recent podcast about volunteering, and and that's exactly what my dad did in the seventies. Um, with he knew Paul and Tim, um, and he was the airfield manager. So uh, I don't know if you remember all those photographs of lines of sort of fifty Hercules and the fiftieth mm. anniversary of the Hunter. Um, so my my dad did the parking plan back then and parked all those jets. So um, oh wow, so that was the, so awesome. so I I literally grew up going to. Um, going to Greenham Common and Fairford um back in the um back in the 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 eighties um and you know hanging around with all those people then and uh, purely by coincidence I came back from I'd been travelling, I'd I'd quit a job and went away overseas travelling. Um came back and I took a temporary summer job at Fairford um got interviewed by Tim and Paul who obviously I I'd known for years um mm. uh, and hadn't seen for a long time and so I started working as a temporary you know summer summer job in um in aircraft ops um and then gradually you know th- over the over the years at fairford i i worked up the the ranks there um we used to do um at fairford we used to do eastbourne and sunderland air shows yeah um through working at Fairford i used to go and um you know finish fairford go and do those events. Um, as a as a helper and as an, as an observer, and then gradually, you know, started to work towards doing um, the, the deputy FTD job, and then then as an FDD. Um and then you know, two thousand and seven, we I left with some other guys, and we formed we formed TSA, and we've been doing um, you know been doing that ever since.
1: Your your first um, uh, react as as an FDD notwithstanding the many years you you put into the show. Um, before that was the 2003 show the record-breaking show how um how daunting was that when you sort of sat down the year before and you tried to prepare you know the plans for it did you did you want it to be on the scale it was was that the intention or is that just sort of like the happy accident of what yeah how things fell
2: well so i've, I've never actually been fdd at fairford i've only ever i only ever oh, worked from the Echo ops team there but we so my okay. involvement then was was on was on putting that show together with all the the static assets and the ground stuff. So that was my first year. So basically that at that point that was all I knew. It's a bit of a
0: baptism of fire.
2: And and you know like and um you know air lightnings being trucked in from all around the country and the phantom um that blue phantom that um came from um it came from the museum, didn't it? I can't remember where it came from. But um that sat at Fairford for a long time and we sort of notionally owned that phantom for a number of years while it was <laughs> while it's stuck there (laughs) because you know nobody wanted it um so um yeah that was that was a that was a crazy year and you know again on a, a previous podcast you touched on all the other stuff that that perhaps you don't think about when you attend an air show as a punter so accommodation and transport and all that kind of stuff so you know um we we had to accommodate 1500 air crew um in and around the the swindon and Sheltonham area um, in university halls in hotels. We had to move all those people on buses to to get them to and from the hotels. You know they had some of them had to be in in time for the briefing in the morning. Um, they all want to stay after the show and have a few beers. You know so they wants to be on the last bus. Um, uh, you know that, that kind of stuff. We had to all the volunteers to accommodate the teams. You know the air traffic plan airspace. So there's, there's an awful lot that 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 um, that team get involved in, which is what you know Peter Riox now. Um, up to his neck, and that is a is a really demanding and very very what, and it's unique. You know that that department at Riyadh is unique because the scale of the show just does isn't seen anywhere else really. Um, so we we've we've talked a bit about
0: booking military acts and and military air shows. Is it simpler on the civilian side? Both, but actually both as um in terms of being a, an ftd and, and the organization aspect and also booking civilian acts is that easier is it is it more of a you, you go after what you want or is it still quite competitive
2: yeah so and so there's a the market you know we uh, un almost uniquely in this country we've got an air show industry um which which you don't see in many places now i i, I um i do a show in australia as you mentioned and, and they've got it's very very different over there just cuz the size of the country Um, and the number of shows whereas you know we've got loads of shows happening all the time Um, and we're very very well um, provided for in terms of warbirds and display acts and everything else so so there's a bit it's a bit more you know we people will send quotes um to us you know i'll go out and ask for quotes for things we want and then um i present that to the to the display organizers um to the event organizers who then look at what they want to achieve and you know, increasingly, my shows, like I said, my, a lot of mine have been around for a long time. Um, they've all got opinions about what they want to see in their show, um, and you know, really, my job is to basically is to is to recommend people who who I like to work with and who are who are you know very safe, sensible um, people, um, and who are good at what they do, and and also um, because we're doing a lot of shows, you know, you want people who are easy to work with. Um, and you know sounds boring but good at the paperwork and all that kind of stuff because that that mm. um, that is a, a tedious part of what we have to do now um, and then really we make a decision from decision from there um, and you know choosing between spitfires is difficult because there's loads of them you know so um, often that will come down to price and you know and and, and who wants to get their airplane to a certain show um, uh, you know choosing between there's not many classic jets out there anymore so we, you know we're fairly limited on that um and then, you know, whether whether we go for something special, whether we go and look at something like, you know, last last year, um, twenty nineteen, um we had the Swedish Historic Flight at a number of our shows, um which was a lot of work to get them there. Um mm. you know, which which I can expand on if you like. You know, it was, it was a lot of a lot you know, it's it's again it's it's um I s I see comments from people saying like you know why don't you just get the vegan and and you know if only it was that simple but um now with the 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 way we work in this in this country with um with the caa and with paperwork we have to go and get um exemptions for all those pilots um because sweden has a has a display authorization system but it's not recognized by the uk so we have to individually Submit all those pilots, all of their experience. They have to fill in their CV. You know how many hours they've got, what their currency is. Um, we submit that to the CAA along with what aircraft they're flying. Um, the aircraft has to get an overflight exemption as well um, because they're effectively flying on a a permit, not a certificate of airworthiness. So they have to get um, get an approval for that, which is another process. Um, when all that's in place, the CAA will either say yes, this guy's fine, or they might mandate a rehearsal. Um, or a validation, so I, as the FTD, and my team have to validate him. Make sure he's safe to fly in the UK if they if they mandate that. So that's a and, and you know that there's all jeopardy attached attached to that. You know that might not they might not get the paperwork, um, and um, you know those sweet switch- Is is that, is that a, a genuine possibility? Yeah. So you know so. The CAA, you know, the, uh, the Swedish historic flight are all, you know, massively experienced blokes. The the engineering stuff, the, the way they operate is is second to none. So you know, they are not a concern. But uh, if if you were to submit a foreign, you know, a foreign military jet from somewhere else in Europe, um, the CAA could look at it and say, just don't, you know, not happy with this guy. He's not got enough experience. Um, really, we're not happy with the maintenance of this airplane, or you know, uh, the, the airworthiness. People might might be looking at that. Um, and then you know, you've then got a choice about validations. You know, do I do I take it a risk that he can come to the UK, and we'll watch him the day before the show? But what what if it what if he's no good? You know, what if he what if he fails? Um, then potentially we can't let him fly on the show, or do I go to the expense of flying out to his home country to validate him a month in advance, which is all just mm. extra money and stuff? And what is the show going to get out of having that that particular you know? Most of my shows we don't sell tickets, so we're not going to recoup any ticket money by having the Vigan there. It's literally just to try and to try and give people what they want. Um, so there's there's an awful lot of work that goes into that, um, you know, and that's not even including the, the cost. You know, the cost of those particular airplanes, the Swedish airplanes, is is pretty eye watering, um, as yeah. you can imagine. Um, fuel bills are pretty pretty serious. Um, so um, so you know that 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 kind of thing. Um we tried to respond to you know, to the the um the feedback we get and, and what the what the community the community want to see um and what people request on social media and stuff and it's it's not always possible but last year we did go we did go all out to try and get those Swedish jets. Um and um you know, and it's an awful lot of work that goes into that but you know, it was um, you know, Southport to see the to see the Vigan and the um, mm. and the tunnen flying around over the um over the beach there was awesome, so
0: worth it i I, i'm conscious of letting the others have a chance to ask something as well but it was an interesting thing because obviously i'm assuming a lot of that came about because the red arrows obviously being on tour um not being available and so there was whether it was you know you needed another just big ticket item or there was just more budget available to get other stuff something like the swedish historics is i I think it's safe to say is very much it's well it's safe to say if they're a huge enthusiast item yes um and you talked about what the community wants and the fact that it's not a ticket selling show so obviously you, you you've got a different audience to what some the likes of a, a Rhea or a Ovalton have who um it's just a very different environment so what do you see the swedish historics as being big crowd pullers I i'm trying to think of the, the least not, condescending is not the right word but the right way to put it you know it is is a beach going a seaside show going audience are, are they going to appreciate that or is it w- what's the appeal in getting something like that for a show of that nature
2: well so this is exactly that this is the dilemma we always have which is that the um the people who are vocal on social media um and who send feedback are people who want to see big noisy fast jets and you know we mm-hmm. all get that um you know, I think if you were to look at the beach at Bournemouth, which has got, you know, four hundred thousand people on it on a good weather day over the show, you know, how many of those people actually know what a vegan is or have looked at yeah. the website or who've who've you know, who have gone there specifically to see a vegan? Very, very few I should think. Um mm-hmm. so it's trying to find a balance between the two. You know, and the Seaside Air Show, you know, it it's got it f- fills a niche, you know. Um I know that most of you guys probably might go and do your burger break during the Wing Walkers, but um a lot of the people who go and sit on the beach have gone there to see the wing walkers um every year because that's mm. that's what they remember um 100%. So it's trying it's trying to find a balance between between the, the sort of the the crowd pleasers and the the sort of perennial air show acts and also trying to trying to give people what they want and something that is like you said last year we we had to fill a, a gap because the red arrows weren't there um, we had some money because the red arrows weren't there um and so you know, I think we did two things last year for the enthusiasts. Specifically, talking about Bournemouth now, so we had um, we had the um, uh, the Drakum there, and then we also had the the Ultimate Fighters. Um, um, you know, and, and those were things that we in a in a normal year where we had four days of Red Arrows, that they might be precluded just because of cost. Um, but you know, we we did some deals with those guys to get to get them there. Um, same as it, you know, at Eastbourne we managed to get the Breitling um, Jet Team to try and replace the Reds or to fill in for the Reds um, and again that is you know French guys flying Estonian airplanes in the mm-hmm. UK there's a the, the, the paper, paper trail for that is, is also pretty big so um, yeah so you know it, it's finding a balance between all of those things basically trying to trying to please the, your everyday punter on the beach at Bournemouth and also trying to um, trying to, to please the um, display community.
1: I suppose I've got two things. The, f- the first is that um, it's, it's an interesting point, isn't it? The the balance between um, sort of a hardcore enthusiast who's like, oh yeah, Swedish historic's great, and sort of um, the punter who might go to the you know um, uh, uh, their local event every year because it's a nice event to go to, but they might not sort of be able to um, differentiate between a Swedish historic yo know, jet or and a typhoon. It's just a noisy jet, which is great, but. Um, Uh, sometimes i think um can a case be made to say that now that they've seen those swedish historics and they've read about them in the program they've heard the commentary talking about them does that does that help inform the public so that they might then once they've seen these swedish historics actually be able to think oh yeah these are completely different you know there's some people in sweden that are really um you know uh they really love their history and, and this is what um our neighbours or Scandinavian neighbours used to operate, you know, because there's a there's an education element to all their shows, I think.
2: Yeah, totally. And and to, to link that back to the UK history and, you know, a Draken and a Lightning and that kind of stuff and, and, and that's where the commentary is important and it was the same last year with the the, the P eight we had we had a fly pass from a P eight at Bournemouth last year that had come mm. um, you know, he'd come all the way from Sicily, he launched to come and fly past at Bournemouth. So Fantastic. he came out of Sicily, flew all the way from Sicily, sat in the hold for quite a long time, burning <laughs> Uncle Sam's gas. Um, <laughs> did, um, did a f- couple of fly pasts um, and then went home. And you know that looks like a Gray Seven Three Seven flying down the beach of Bournemouth, um, but it's all about the commentary to explain that that was there were, again. Loads of effort in went into that defense diplomacy. The Americans wanted to come and do that. Um, it's worth it to them to come and and, you know and and work with their their closest partners um, and to bring a jet that we're we're going to get so you know it's all those kind of things it's, you know that that sort of thing is worth doing and it's worth the effort to, to put in to do that
1: when and this the the other thing I was thinking um, when we were just talking about the the Swedish historics um, is that um, now that they have um, performed successfully at UK events in a flying display albeit at um, at uh, seaside shows um so perhaps the the risk element is slightly reduced. But um, now that they perform successfully, do you think that has any impact on making it easier um, for future attendance? Or will it still be the same level of work that would need to be put in as you put in in 2019?
0: Or or, or may, maybe as well in, in general, the sort of the general classic jet scene here, because obviously at the moment we are completely reliant on overseas classic jets if we get any at all yeah um it, 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 do you think that might help pave the way to lifting things back up here a bit
2: so that there's two ways you can do it so um the way the regs are written if we want the swedish guys to come back next t- next year you know um in 2021 when we're definitely gonna have air shows next year um, <laughs> <laughs> if, if we want them to come back the way the rules are written we have to do the same we have to go through the same process so okay that we would have to get exemptions for, but you know they've been here once they've been you know highly satisfactory they've conducted themselves very well i've written a report to say they were they were awesome. you know back to ca so now ca has got some some knowledge and some history on them so next time when we put in for um for an exemption for them it, there's a bit of background knowledge to it the other way they can go which is the way that the um some of the norwegian guys um do it is that they get a uk display authorization um which means then they are you know essentially good to go and have a 13 month validity da like everybody else does so um, that's the other way you can do it if in any you know and if, if the Swedes were going to come and do a lot of shows or if any any overseas operator were going to come and do a lot of shows that's worth them looking at because um, because then they've got the same rights as anybody else
1: I've always wondered that how the you know because the the Norwegian historics you know, the the mig um, is, is a swept wing jet um, to say nothing I mean vampires as well. Vampire and Venom but the the MiG is a swept wing jet and I've always thought I, I wonder how they can get such a broad attendance at UK shows so I didn't know that was how they did it
2: yeah and, and the so that's a that's a, an NREG American NREG airplane the the, mm. um, the um, Norwegian Historic Flight MiG so you know so that's they still have to get an exemption but they've got a they work on a on a essential permit to fly thing as well so um, we have to get approval for that but they, they, they get that own approval and that lasts them for the season so they can come and fly at various shows on that approval um and you know so it, it, there's various ways of doing it you know um going back to your previous question about the the Swedes for example doing more other events um there's still a limitation on swept wing jets um doing things at overland air shows so um they would have to be non-aerobatic if they were to come and do something at a um a UK show unless things change. Do you, do you see things changing? Um so I think um I think they probably will. Um uh you know I think there's it's been a long process since since Shoreham of, uh, of basically you know where the industry is, is still proving itself and the the regulator is is um is is you know reasonably happy with what we're doing and and they they're giving us things back in um piece by piece so um you know we we do have uh, in the c a a general aviation unit who look after air shows um we do have there have people who are actually you know representing air shows up to the up to board level so um i'm hopeful that if that continues that we might start getting things back bit by bit you know there's probably a threshold and they've probably got a they've got a point at which they'll um um you know they're probably happy and may not go even further but you know we'll have to wait and see what happens
0: but before we started recording actually we, we were talking about you you mentioned um, seeing things online people asking why why display lines change why things have changed specifically since Shoreham. um i don't I don't really have a question to come off that, but maybe you know if you wanted to take the opportunity to address some of those things that you've seen and you know <sighs> you'll probably agree that the post and world has been frustrating i'm not to downplay the tragedy of it but as an airshow goer and for the airshow industry it's probably been incredibly frustrating um but there seems to be a lot of misconceptions and you, and you touched on that before we started recording so um
2: yeah could, well <laughs> i mean so you know it, it's been um, as a you know as an aviation enthusiast it's been frustrating um for for everybody for me included you know i i do this for a living i pay my mortgage um from doing air shows, so i am quite invested in wanting the um the whole thing to continue uh, you know and 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 i don't wanna you know i'm not i'm not here to defend the c a a but you know <laughs> immediately after Shoreham there was the easiest option for them was to stop air shows and that genuinely was on the you know was on the on the table really? yeah so the week after Shoreham you know one option was to just cancel air shows and therefore you've achieved Jeez. safe you've achieved safety because you're not you you've taken away the risk because you're not holding the events um and again, you know, there were people who went into bat for air shows um and said, You know we can make it happen in a safe manner mm. um and then you know it it has been a it has been a difficult and um and challenging um period since then um but I think you know we're we're getting to a point now where it's it's for the last couple of years it's um it's working pretty well you know you, um i think there were things that were happening pre Shoreham that that you know um we weren't surprised that we weren't allowed to do those kind of things anymore. You know, you look at some of the safety distances um, that were in the old rules and stuff, and I th- I don't think anybody really wants to go back to some of those days. Um, so, so it's not it's not all been bad, but I think we're we're approaching a good place now where I think we at least all know what the score is. Um, workload for you know the level of responsibility, the understanding of risk um, that we all have to deal with has gone up. Quite a lot. Um, the paperwork burden is now, you know, pretty serious, um, just in terms of what we do, and and also, you know, what what the pilots have to deal with as well. The pilots are doing a lot more paperwork. Um, they have, you know, more restrictive currency limits and stuff for the for the the the, the practicing and the um, the training they do. So across the board, it's been it's it is undoubtedly more complicated. But you know, ultimately, we're still here doing air shows um mm-hmm. you know, and the alternative you know was that we we potentially wouldn't be, so um so yeah i think we're i think we're doing okay, except this year perhaps, except this year perhaps yeah
0: presumably for you guys and and for your company, it's been a very quiet year then
2: yeah it's been it's been really bad you know and and um so i i have done um i was at i was at goodwood uh last week doing some filming um for something that's gone out this weekend on on goodwood um mm-hmm. on t v um and that has been my only sort of live event I've done this year um so it's been it has been really really difficult and um and very challenging you know f- to to try and try and keep the business running at all has been has been very challenging when you think that you know basically i've lost all of my um all of my you know yeah. my income my trade and and the weird thing about this particular one is that you know I'd normally spend the winter off doing overseas events um and yeah you know, everything's gone you know so my the mid the work i had in the middle east has has also stopped um the australian show i was supposed to be doing in march next year has also been postponed um to the end of next year um so you know that that's the big challenge is that it's not just it's not just the uk literally everything has stopped
1: around the world how do you um how long's a piece of string i suppose but how do you see um 2021 shaping at the moment, and that might be a very unfair question, and we might have to ask Ian to, to cut that out because, you know, who knows? But sort of, if you look now from from a business perspective, how do you see the next twelve months panning out?
2: So, you know, I've just bid for all of the, the UK military assets. Um, all of my event organisers currently, you know, are planning to have an event.
1: Mm-hmm. That's encouraging.
2: Yeah, from the aviation side of it, we're fine. We'll 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 make that work. Um the CAA have given extensions to some to some currency requirements and some qualification requirements. So we've all had our you know, our FDD currency and our um and some of the flying currencies and DA limits have been extended or, or um or arrangements have been put in place. So we can make all that happen. Um and really, you know, if you look at if you look at from the flying side of things, um, having an extended break is basically what happens every year, anyway. You know, air shows finish in September, October, and don't start again till May, June. So we're used to having a, you know, to having an extended break where people have to go and get current again and practice, and you know, and bring the airplanes out of winter storage. So that it is very unusual what's happened this year, but that's not, you know, that's not a massive leap to get to the point where we can have airplanes ready, um, and we can have people to run the shows. The the big thing is, you know, as as we see in society is just um the rules are going to have to change in some way for outdoor events you know that and that is um that's that's the big thing so as the rules currently stand today um you know some events can happen and you've seen shuttleworth and and you know duxford got close um, um head corner run an event but for you know for other events it as the rules stand today it's going to be very challenging um to do that so we do need some kind of a um you know a, a change to happen or an a alleviation in some of the some of the requirements before next summer um uh, yeah and hopefully we get to the stage where we're, we're all a bit more familiar with with living with it and um and that kind of thing can happen
1: have you been looking at um f- from an FTD point of view how shuttleworth and duxford and indeed the Headcorn event have um Sort of not, I don't know, managed with the virus, and yet still managed to put something on. it Have you been sort of keeping an eye on that and looking at that with a with a critical sort of from a critical point of view?
2: Yeah, and and so shuttle has shared a lot of information with with the with the you know the community. So okay, um, that's fantastic. They've given feedback to everybody. So that's that's brilliant. And you know, unfortunately, they're in a unique situation with the fact that they've got all the airplanes that they they own a base there and they've got a really strong volunteer team you know so and they can make that work as a as a you know from a cost point of view and a um you know and a and a location point of view that works for them um and the reason you've not seen that happening in many other places it just it just doesn't really work in a lot of other venues um so that's the challenge there duxford had to make some changes in order to get there um to get their event to happen um and you know, and like I said, they got really close. Um, and so you know, we we do talk amongst amongst you know ourselves to to work at what those things are. Um, and you know, the the big problem with the seaside shows, obviously, is just is there's no fence, there's no tickets, mm. there's no barrier, and there's large large numbers of people. Um, and so it's trying to it's trying to manage that basically, which is which is going to be one of the challenges going forward.
0: Going back. Uh, well, ho- hopefully looking forward to the future as much as anything. But but you mentioned, of course, that now you, you, round about this time of year you'd be thinking about overseas shows. What and you said that in the UK it's very different, or, or, or it's largely a different, uh, not not job itself, but but a different scene. What what are those differences between being an FDD and and in the UK and, and putting on shows here versus somewhere like Australia or the Middle East or other places you've worked?
2: So the, um, uh, the Middle East, the Middle East is interesting because um, you know that they are they have a lot of they have a lot of events and they have a lot of aviation type things happen out there. Um, so you know, there'll be Dubai Air Show, but that is run by the military effectively. Um, um, and the, the the trade shows that happen out there are run by the military on um, on those kind of things Then they do a lot of things. You know that they will do a lot of events for one-off things for you know for for. TV footage or for promotional reasons um, very few sort of air shows and we used to go and do the Alain aerobatic show out there um, which was um, which was good because it on an airfield it's a traditional air show with a crowd and a static display and a, and a display line and, um, and you know great backdrop with sand dunes, just beautiful sand dunes out in the desert in Abu Dhabi um, but they've got no local um, air display participants apart from the military so, we used to have to ship in everything from Europe or the US to fly mm-hmm. in in our lane, and that remains that's the same in Saudi. I've done a show, um, a few shows in Saudi, in Saudi, and anything um, anything aerobatic will come from from Europe basically, um, and be contained in. Um, and then you've got the problem, you know, you're trying to work with um, varying rules. So the the UAE, um, they base their air display rules basically on the UK. Um, so that's all pretty familiar for me and for, for UK and European participants. Saudis use American rules, um, so that's, that means distances are in feet, not meters and all that kind of stuff. You know. <laughs> um, uh, so that, again, that's, that requires a bit of a shift in thinking. Um, but the good thing out there is basically as long as you, as long as you come up with a sensible plan um, and you present it to the local authorities there, they're generally pretty, pretty relaxed about it. Um, and uh, and you you know you can do you can do cool things out there you know I've I've been out there with the wing walkers and we've flew aeroplanes around Burj Khalifa and stuff in Dubai, um, and landed out at the Skydive Dubai um, airstrip you know so they are if you as long as you go there with a plan and a, and and make sure it's safe then they're pr- they're pretty good mm. um, Australia is um, I guess a bit more like the US so it's you know massive country um, the distances really are. I really are phenomenal. Um and so to put the air show on there and and the Avalon is basically a combination of Riyadh and Farnborough if you think of it like that. So it's a it's a trade show for yeah, four days sure. and it's a it's a, a big public display for three days. Um and you know, we have we have C seventeens bringing in aircraft ground equipment from all around Australia. You know, a C seventeen will go up to Darwin and pick up a B fifty two tow bar. To bring it down to Avalon, <laughs> you know, um, and and the the, the distances involved, that the the cost involved is is absolutely phenomenal, um, and you know they they used to they used to put the B fifty two tow bar which lives at Darwin because that's that's one of their diversion airfields and they used to put that on. There's one in Australia, I think, and they used to put that on a truck <laughs> and drive it from Darwin to <laughs> Melbourne. <laughs> um, so you know, so it it is a logistically, it's just a massive effort. Um, and we tend to get aircraft that are, um, you know, are from New South Wales or Victoria because the um, or or South Australia because the transit distances are are just so so massive, uh, and the cost is enormous for everyone else. Um, but it's um, that's a that's a really interesting show. The military support out there is is amazing, and, and I guess it's a bit like when we were spoiled back in the um, you know sort of ten years ago here maybe. Um, mm. with military participation. Um, so the the Air Force um or the ADF out there really, you know, really throw themselves into it and they put on an hour long um air power demo. Um awesome. where we'll have we'll have helicopter attack helicopters at fifty feet, um, you know, out over the um over the airfield and then three hornets above that with pyro attacking the airfield and then an AWACS <laughs> above that and then a tanker and a you know, it. it we we have seventeen aircraft which the Air Force um coordinate um sat in holds uh, and all doing this hour long um air power Demo. and that is, you know, that's a phenomenal sport. And some of those aircraft, you know, the C seventeen comes from Amberley, um, which is Brisbane, and he flies down, sits in the hold, does his display and then goes back to Amberley again. The the P eight <laughs> the P eight comes from Edinburgh, which is Adelaide, and he does that and, and goes home every day. So <laughs> they, are, they put in a phenomenal effort and um, you know j- just to come and, and put aircraft in front of the public um, because it's a massive event and it ha- only happens every two years you know they really really go for it so there's there's a fairly healthy warbird scene there as well isn't there there is and, and getting healthy all the time they're, they're um, really they're producing yeah so there's there's lots of um, lots of new warbirds happening all the time there's and they've got some unique stuff you know there's um, I don't know if you've seen the, the boomerang that's in, in France or Belgium but they've got a
1: yeah, Sam and I have both seen it in. Yeah. Uh, we saw it in Denmark. Denmark. Yeah, oh, right.
2: Yeah, it's in Jersey, I think, as well. But that, you know, the boomerang just looks crazy, sounds awesome. Um, mm-hmm. They've got the um, the Meteor F8 out there, which just mm-hmm. makes mm-hmm. that wonderful blue note because it's got the it's got the four cannon ports. Um, mm-hmm. They've got um, they got a Hudson out there. So I think the only Hudson flying in the world. Um, oh wow! They've got a Merlin-engined um, P40, which is the only one of those in the world. So they've got they've got some cool airplanes. Um, and uh, there's an organisation called hars that live uh, near Sydney. They've got um, they've got a constellation, um, a Catalina, loads of Dax, a Neptune, um, and yeah. they, they've just been given a P3. Well, last year they got given a P3 by the Air Force. Um, wow! So, that, so there's, <laughs> there's a bunch of guys operating a T3 Warbird um, and acting Um So so the. The you know, the, the regulations out there are fairly permissive and they can be restricted in some ways, but you know, they they are, you know, they're pretty good at letting that kind of thing happen. And you know, we get to do cool things at Avalon like, you know, we had um Catalina, Neptune, um, and then a, a P three, an Air Force P three as it was then, um, come and do. You know, they weren't quite in formation but they were doing sort of a racetrack kind of thing. So, you know, we could do a big long historical um anti submarine thing. Um mm. some of the Warbirds, you know, they've got they've got a an Avon engine sabre out there, so when that was still flying we could do Spitfire Mustang Meteor Sabre. Um and then and then chuck a hornet up behind that. So, you know, we can those kind of things we can really cover some um some historical um could cover quite a lot of ground, which um, which the punters seem to quite like.
1: Fantastic. You know, you say that the UK has an airshow industry and it's quite unique in that. It's almost like um it's like an export, isn't it? You know, it's sort of literally transplanting your expertise out into uh, other nations that don't have that locally. Yeah. Um, uh, and its I've never really thought of it as that sort of commodity before.
2: Yeah, and, and you know, we we have exported our regulations. So, like I said, the Middle East uses... Use, most of the Middle East uses, um, uh, uses UK regulations. Um, our regulations are used by a lot of Europe as well. You know, they they look at what, cause we've had a display authorization system in place for a long, you know, long time. We've had actual proper air show regulations in place for, you know, for, um, for a long time. So a lot of other countries use that. Um, mm-hmm. And also, you know, we, we now have, um, so another, another post Shoreham thing really, but display directors now are, um, have to be accredited. Um, so, so pre Shoreham, anybody pretty much could, could, um, could you know have a spitfire at their village fate, and they could do the paperwork and put the maps in, and they would probably get permission from the CAA. Um, and, and obviously, those days are gone now. So now, all the FTDs in the UK are, are um, attend a, a training course and they get accreditation. And we have currency limits put on us. Um, so uh, and we have tiers. So you know, tier one show is like a, a village fate, or it's up to three items. So it could be a flying club type thing. And then tier three is like Eastbourne, Bournemouth, React that kind of size of event. And and you know, you can't you can't go into straight into tier three, you now've got to work your way up the tiers, you've got to be supervised. Um uh you know the CAA are are you have to put reports into there tracking your progress and tracking what events you're doing and stuff. So that kind of thing is 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 really advanced in the international community. Um and so we're kind of exporting that as well. Um so you know UK UK expertise and UK accreditation is actually quite valuable. Um so uh, yeah, and the, and the reason the reason I go and do Australia is basically they they have a lot of really experienced people, um, but they don't have anything as big as 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 big as Avalon basically, and they value the sort of the UK, um, the and what we what I bring to, to Avalon is currency basically. So they've got really good people, but they yeah. do, they do one show every two years, whereas you know we're doing a lot of shows all the time. You know I, I do I do more shows in August than they do in five years in Avalon. Yeah, <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's and you know we've made all those mistakes uh, we've yeah of just, course we've just, we've just done it all over you know over a longer period of time and because we've got lots of lots of shows so um so that's that's pretty valuable to people so that the uk is quite well respected in the you know in the international industry
1: you you touched on um shoreham there we were talking before the podcast about an earlier podcast that we did where we were talking about um hunters back at air shows um What do you think, uh, from a technical point of view, it will take for um, not for them to be regular, but for a hunter flying display? Maybe not necessarily aerobatic, but for a hunter uh, participation in a flying display somewhere in the UK.
0: I think I think listeners are probably going to get bored of us banging on about hunters at some point. But I think it's a a testament to the
2: needs to do it. Shut us up. Well,
0: yeah, it's a testament to uh, how iconic the aircraft is.
2: Well so I think there's there's two there's two ways to look at this there's there's one is the sort of the um is the event organizer's opinion and and I think you know who's going to be the first event organizer to book a hunter so I think I think that's what you touched on when you discussed it yeah. last time was mm, you know mm. and I and I actually think because of the scarcity of classic jets um you know and I think with a bit of time I think probably hunters are desirable um uh, you know they're going to be limited in what they can do in in the short term but um i think from the from the more technical point, point of view um and and what i what i thought about when i heard those comments on the previous podcast was what it would take to get a um, hunter display up and running um and that is you know a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of will from a, from an aircraft operator um so you know so i think you you need to speak to a hunter hunter pilot or hunter operator but I think it's probably something like 1,500 quid every time you just press the starter on a Hunter Wow. before you even put any fuel in it and before you even wow. take into account insurance. And, you, you know, so you need to have somebody who's got an aircraft that is airworthy and has got all the, all the safety mods and stuff that are required on it. Um, and that's, you know, that's a, a big engineering effort to get to that stage. Then somebody's got to be prepared to work up a display, um, which, is, which means flying time. That means you've got to get in the airplane and go and do it, so that's expense. Um, then that person's then got to stay current as well. So that means they've got to do three trips in, in 90 days and um, you know one practice in 30 days um, mm-hmm. throughout the summer. And so they're gonna to need to have enough bookings to pay for all that, you know, to and sustain insurance that. And everything yeah. else. So if you, if you add up insurance, all the practice, the engineering all, and all the rest of it, um, ejection seat servicing, you know, a hunter, I don't even want to think yeah. about what that's like. Yeah, You add all that up and then divide it by, you know, however many shows you've got bookings for. So um, that's, you know, or you've got to have a really, you know, a, a, a benefactor who wants to give you a load of money to do that. So that, that I think is the, I actually think, you know, probably, you know, there might be some organizers out there who might book a hunter,
1: but you know, the, it's whether somebody's prepared to get to that point. Um, do you, Do you think that um, in that sort of <clears throat> almost a rock and a hard place situation, or um, do you think that perhaps a um, a foreign operator uh, thinking about say the 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 Dutch Hunter, which I think has been in and out of St. Athan recently, from um, local knowledge um, on some sort of oh, really? maintenance? Yeah, yeah, I thought that as well. Yeah. Quite 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 routinely, but. Um, uh, or, or, or you know, the operators of the the Swiss um, hunters. Yeah. Do you think that will add? Would that be more trouble than it's worth because of the complexities of getting, uh, you know, of a, a foreign classic no. jet in the UK? I mean, that'd be the way yeah. to do it. Yeah. Do you think so?
2: Yeah. So I think if somebody's already got an airplane that's that's serviceable and the the guys are already current and trained, um, you know, and they have potentially got bookings elsewhere in Europe, then you know, um, we'd still have to go through that paperwork process that I explained earlier but um but that would probably be a more cost effective way of doing it in the in the um in the short term um you know to get a hunter
0: do you think do you think that is a taboo that needs to be broken though taboo' is not the right word but you know what i mean it the type being what it is and post showum do you think it needs to be something that just needs to be got over and done with yeah i think for I think it probably
2: m- maybe it would and i and i think you know i I would like to see it hunter hunter anniversaries be commemorated rather than sort of you yeah. know rather than it be this sort of, you know, um, forgotten about and um nobody wants to talk about Hunter anymore. It's it's a shame yeah. because um, you know, it's a great. I, I think that we used to use Jonathan Whaley and misdemeanor at most of our shows. Um, you know, and that was always just an absolute highlight. Um Jonathan Whaley and the Hunter was just always fantastic and
0: do you know I only ever saw him once and it's such a shame I just I the thing that stands out most to me was when he used to roll the canopy back and wave it out of it in a in a jet it just <laughs> seems so such a mad thing well, to I do think, you
2: know, I think you know him diving in you know from height and with loads of smash on and then coming past 10 minutes later at 110 knots or whatever with the canopy back was just Brilliant, <laughs> just absolutely to say, brilliant.
1: to say nothing of how good the the jet well, yeah. or yeah. not how good but how striking the jet looked to yeah. uh, to to the airshow crowd.
2: Yeah, it was, so I think, yeah, I I you know, I personally would love to do Hunter back, and I just think you know, we hopefully it'll happen one day.
1: Do you think it's just a matter of time?
2: Yeah, I think so, yeah. And like I said, if we can if there's a Hunter anniversary that we can commemorate and we can we can do that for, it'd be great. I mean, we we really. It would have been nice to get a hunter back at Dunsfold before Dunsfold closed, you know, but unfortunately we didn't manage to achieve that.
0: Um, I, I wanted to ask about the Red Bull era Air Races. Now, I never went to one, unfortunately, not in person. I used to watch them on TV every now and then and on YouTube and stuff. What Was there a market difference in organising them versus a normal air show? Was it a, a completely separate category of things? Thinking in, in particular about the fact that some of them, I mean... I, Looking at the the ones you've done, Hungary in particular, I know for certain was you know in the middle of the city on the river. What what went into that?
2: Well, they, by their very nature, all of the the Red Bull air races were in picturesque location. You know, very very mm-hmm. um, great locations for TV. So, um, so you know they were all in ch- all in challenging places basically. Um, <laughs> and and so they, you know there were bits and pieces that were similar to normal air shows, but a lot of it was was very unique. So if you think about the the two London ones um, you know uh, Greenwich um, was so we used to have to close London City Airport um, for when oh, we were really? flying yeah so we used That's to have to do that we used to have to um, close the river because there's so much boat traffic on the River Thames that it's classed as congested so that it's basically like like <laughs> built up area so we used to have to close the river um, you know and so knock on effects for timing and managing all that was, was enormous Um uh, you know Ascot. I remember. So we had we had a a, a brief gap between Greenwich and, and Ascot. And when they when the air race started up again, they came and said they wanted to go to Ascot. Um, and I thought I thought I know where Ascot is. <laughs> I've seen it. I've seen it <laughs> out the window landing at Heathrow. Um, and so I looked on a. I got a chart out and I was like, this, it's inside Heathrow's airspace, basically. You know, it's like. It's crazy. <laughs> um, you know, when you start those discussions with the CAA, so you, there's there's two. There's two aspects to it. There's the the CAA um, air shows people, if you like the General Aviation Unit, and then there's also airspace. Um And so you go and meet with them and say, you know, I want to do this. And, you know, um, when you've all finished laughing and, all oh, nobody's left the room, so, you know, we'll, we can carry on talking. And, um, <laughs> and, you know, they start off by thinking, how on earth are we going to do this? And then gradually, bec- because, again, most of them are, most of those people in those departments relish a challenge and are you know professionally curious to see if we can put this kind of thing on um and um and so you know you start on that basis and um for ascot CAA and and NATS spoke to heathrow um and you know there were lots of discussions with all those all those stakeholders basically and we looked at um all the departures from heathrow that went near or, or went over ascot um, and I, and I think there were, there were two that went, so we, we need obviously needed a bubble of airspace around us, got to do what we had to do. Um, and the arrangement was that we would not go above 500 feet with the, with the race airplanes, um, which is pretty low, really. We would mm. not go above 500 feet. Um, so, um, and then obviously they put a buffer on top of that. Um, so we basically had up to about a thousand feet. Um, but we didn't want, you know, we couldn't use that without well, us for emergencies, basically. Um, yeah. And that's not a lot of space. That is a pretty and and the air race aeroplanes, they were capable of doing that and the course was designed to make the vertical turns in a place that was convenient and they could they could stay below five hundred feet so we could achieve all that. And then they overlaid all the departures from the previous year and there were two flights that went over Ascot, um, at between a thousand and fifteen hundred feet. And it was <laughs> and it was the it was both the Johannesburg flights which were which leave Heathrow on when they're on, on the westerly departures and they're very, very heavy and they used to sort of um one was the South African Airways A three forty and one was the BA A three eighty and they used to sort of hobble over Ascot at about fifteen hundred feet and um and you know those were those flights both left late in the evening so that was a risk okay. we, could, we could mitigate and um so we got the airspace in the daytime. But um but you know that, that site we had a road at one end of it uh, running at one side of the track um we had the airspace above us we had the the town of Ascot behind us um there's a golf course in the middle of the racetrack um which we had to clear there was a football <laughs> pitch which we had to clear um so really challenging place you know and and then ascot race course have to go in liaise with the golf course and say you know we need to keep it clear for this week and we had to put we had to put security and we had to have um you know we had to have positive checks to make sure that was definitely happening um uh, but we managed to get it to... And and the great thing about Air Race, uh, aside, you know, uh, sort of comparing it to air shows, is we can ha- get a GPS trace of all the aeroplanes. Um, and they're not trying... They're trying to fly the fastest line. Um, and so we know what the fastest line is. And the fastest line doesn't take them near the road or the built-up area. Mm-hmm. You know? So so none of them are, you know, none of them are trying to fly close to people. They're all trying to fly the fastest line. So we could we could put a very, very accurate... GPS trace in front of the, the CAA and say you know this is what this is what it is going to look like on the day plus or minus like you know a meter or whatever um and I think you know you look at the timings there's there's like a propellers a propeller spinner's difference in some of the timings um throughout the day so it's all incredibly accurate um but yeah it's
1: definitely <laughs> a challenge the most complicated jigsaw how did yeah. you get
0: involved in the in the air races then considering that the not
1: I'm,
2: might
0: sound wrong actually, but considering the difficulty considering the departure from the normal air show scene that it is
2: yeah it was back in um i think two thousand and eight i think um and um they um they they were, they were dealing with i think they'd lost their u k um aviation advisor and they were looking for somebody um and i was recommended them just through you know other you know other air show experience there 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 were air british display pilots and you know well known Warbird pilots who were involved in air race as well, who who recommended me, um, mm-hmm. and so I got I got flown out to Detroit at very short notice um, to go and have a conversation out there, and then came back and started working on on the Greenwich race, um, and then, but just because of the skills that I had with other air shows, I I got involved in doing some some other stuff with them overseas as well. So um, so I'd start doing bits and pieces of work with them um, at other events in Europe, uh, Europe mainly.
0: Yeah. Good fun,
2: yeah, yeah, crazy, and you know you can you can imagine what Red Bull Red Bull's a brand is like and what they like to work for. You know, um, everything happens at a thousand miles an hour and um, hmm. uh, and you know very demanding um, timings. You know, everything was timed down to sort of you know thirty seconds because it's all done for a TV product. But um, the uh, the post show parties were were awesome. <laughs> <laughs> One of the biggest memories, <laughs> or not, or yeah, like depending off, on maybe. how good they were. <laughs> If I remember rightly, for the Red Bull Air Race, a lot of the they weren't operated from airfields.
0: They were you know, so the aircraft would land at the venues. How did you to get around that?
2: Yeah, so Ascot, for example. Well, um, so Greenwich, we um, they actually built a runway opposite City Airport. So on the other side of the dock, they 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 made a temporary runway there, um, which say so tarmacked a runway, um, uh, and and the temporary runway wherever it is is part of the TV product as well so they want to have cameras there they want to show the pilot okay. strapping in so they make it look pretty good so they they actually out to proper runway um, and Ascot um, they because of where it was we couldn't the risk factor goes up of an airspace infringement by having people transit in from elsewhere so like let's say we'd base them at White Waltham for example they'd have to cross the Heathrow approach to get to Ascot you know once on right. the way there and once on the way back and you know that is what we're looking at you know foreign pilots um english not their first language they're they're revved up because they're going to go and do a um you know a race um so we we wanna to minimize all that um and aesthetically it was better to have them take off in the track um so we we um they got airborne from the from the horse racing track at ascot um And, and, you know, and I just go to the CA with that and say, you know, we're going to do this. It's going to be this wide. It's, it's a grass airstrip effectively. It's an unlicensed grass airstrip. And, and the CA is pretty happy with that. The biggest problem was getting that approved by the horse racing people because we want to mow the grass to have it, you know, at length for a runway and the horse racing regulations say you can only mow mow the grass, you know, to such and such a length because it's got to be, it's got to have grown enough for the horse race, which was on, um, You know how many weeks after the air race, so um, so that was actually the biggest challenge. But generally, with those things, as long as you, again, as long as you find a practical solution and you risk assess it, and you present it to the CAA, then they're you know
1: they're generally happy with it. So um, uh, not rebel related now. um, Just thinking about your experience as an FDD. um, It says on your website that um, you've you've been to or or you've you've had custody of nearly 200 events um, thinking back over your time of organising air shows, which have been almost the full gamut are there any sort of standout memories that you have when you think back of over the, the years that you've been doing this and what are they?
2: Yeah it's, it's weird because uh, I, I think my my standout moments probably aren't what you'd expect so um, I, I remember Peter Ria a couple of weeks ago when he was talking about it said Um, and and, uh, this was, this was something that I used to do is on the Thursday evening when everything had arrived. So, you know, with React, you spend nine months working on the show, talking to all these people, booking the airplanes. Um, you know, we didn't do the parking plan, but we worked with the guys who did. So, you know, you're, you're you're invested in all this. And then over the week of the show, you spend the whole time in this windowless hangar. Um, (laughs) so you don't see anything happening. You hear stuff arriving, um, and so Thursday evening, we used to take go for a, a cycle down the line of static airplanes when there's nobody else on the airfield, and mm-hmm. you just got this massive sense of achievement because, while you've been you know shut away, all this stuff's happened, and it's parked where it's meant to park, and it arrived on time, and the guys are in a bus to the hotel, and you know that was all that was all really that was. So I think Thursday evenings, you know, the, the sort of the, the private cycle ride down the static was was amazing. Um, I think. I was very proud of some of the things we put on at Dunsfold, some of the mixed formations we did there, um, you know, the Neville Duke, um, Spitfire and Hunter, things like that, you know, those were great. Um, but I think actually, you know, my my sort of special moments are are mainly the like the one off things. So um standing on top of um at Capa Laferne, um for the Battle of Britain Memorial Day, um and you know, having us having Actual battle of Britain Veterans sat in the tent below you, and the parade comes to attention, and then bang on time a Spitfire and a Hurricane go overhead, which is what you know you've helped coordinate. That's mm. that for me is more goosebumps than than you know than some other yeah. sort of more more sort of standard airshow stuff. Um, same you know, and it, I guess I guess it's FDD sort of obsession is timings, but the Red Arrows at Silverstone you know, when we get the, when we get the red arrows to go down and start and finish straight, just as the, the national anthem finishes. Now that's, that's not as simple as it sounds. There's a lot of work. There that. And that's, <laughs> no, that's, 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 that's a massive sense of, of satisfaction yeah. because that's going out on on international TV and, uh, you know, and we've cracked it. So, um, yeah, so they, those, those kind of things are, are memories that sort of stick with me. Um, and you know, and we, we've done some great things overseas as well, you know, um, Having Jonathan Whaley and the Hunter turn up at um, at Al and start flying over, the, you know, turn up at the in 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 the middle of Abu Dhabi, having flown the jet all the way out from the UK in December, you know, those those sort of logistical challenges are, are great. So um, yeah, it, those are those are sort of my my memories, I guess. Do you still go to shows as a punter? So um, it, so it depends. I um, I'd like to. I I went to Shuttleworth about. Six years ago, and thought this is just you know awesome, and I must come back here again. And I and I haven't managed to do it. And I, I guess I you spend so much time. So my summers this this 2020 was my first summer off in in um, 17 years because um, mm. <laughs> I spend my summers doing air shows, and so that's been that's been quite weird. Um So and I don't you know I I get to, I get a react because I live pretty close by. Um, I I would probably. I, I used to go to Abingdon quite a lot when Abingdon because Abingdon's not far from me, and that was a nice start of the season, just going and, and catch up with mm-hmm. a few people. Um, but you know, by the time we get into July and August, really, you know, most of my weekends are spent either in the office working on the next show or or actually at the event. Um, and then you know, by the end of the season, I've sort of had enough of airplanes for a little while. <laughs> I want <laughs> a few weeks off, but um
1: i think most of us have in a regular year yeah I,
2: I i do i do do enjoy going to shows and it's um and it is nice to catch up with people in a bit more relaxed um you know setting
1: and are
0: there other elements of sort of the aviation world and aviation enthusiast world that you, you you're involved in or you take part in other than the uh the, the flying display director stuff
2: no not so much not really no um and I, I I try and keep an eye you know I read the forums uh, you know and try and keep a, keep an eye on what people are saying and and try and keep on top of stuff because you know, ultimately um, you know you're the people who are going to come to our events and so you know we've got to keep dialed into that. Um, mm. But uh, you know I, I live I live pretty close to Kemble so I get to Kemble occasionally I um, um like I said I, I I get a react and stuff so um, try and do that a bit on in spare time.
1: Is there is there one thing that you would say to enthusiasts on forums or on social media? I was
0: about to ask you exactly the yeah. same question.
1: <laughs> is is there is there one say um every year do you think oh every year someone says this? Is there is there one particular thing that you that you wish you'd be able to respond to? I think
2: so I think it's more of a general thing. So I um I think you just need to you know and and this this these podcasts have been great because I think you've got a real insight into some background things. So You know why Ben Donnell's doing certain things. Why he's you know why he's saying that. Why you know things are as they are at RIA. And you know we we don't put the display line a long way away just to make the photographs not work for you guys. That's (laughs) not what we do. That (laughs) that is not the reason we orientate the display in that direction. (laughs) Is to make the sun be in the wrong place. It's there's usually a reason behind it, which will be you know risk assessment and safety management driven or regulation driven. and you know and a good example is the seaside so the display line's always a long way away at Sunderland and that's because the tide goes in and out and you know the 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 crowd area can move by several hundred meters throughout the day and so we have to put the display line for the worst case scenario um mm-hmm. or we've got to have hundreds of stewards on the beach trying to control a you know a crowd line um and that means that at high tide when everyone's on the seawall the airplanes are a long way away but that's just, you know that that is that's tides and stuff, you know, I can't I can't fix that. Um can't stop the moon.
0: <laughs> I think I think the, the, a king tried to a few thousand years ago but
2: I know that's frustrating, but that, that's just reality and, and we have to deal with what we what we've given and, and similarly you know, there are other places where um you know there will be an obstacle on the display line, on the ideal display line, which means we've got to push it out by fifty metres or we've got to orientate it, you know, swing it round by twenty five degrees. Just to create a bit more space, or we've got to put minimum heights on things. So maybe we have to say the minimum height here is not thirty feet; it's one hundred and fifty feet, or whatever. That's mm. just stuff we've got, you know, we've got to do. And so, um, and, I, and I and I think um, you know, in, engage with engage with FGDs and event organizers in the community. I think you know, I, I'd be happy to answer questions if people have people have got a you know a particular question about something. And I'm you know, a lot of the people I know who who do this job would be the same um you know if, if there's something that's a real issue I mean, maybe we can change it maybe we can make it better um mm. but you know but talk to us um well what what do you think is
0: the best avenue for people to do that you know because I, I i don't know if i would know particularly what the best place to to try and deliver offer that feedback and and have that dialogue would be do you all think the shows do you think
2: they've got social media teams, so you know if you mm-hmm. uh, if you contact um, you know if you contact one of the one of the organisers then with a technical question that will end up with me um, okay so, so for example oh, okay. ev- every year um, when people people go on the Facebook page and request certain aeroplanes then that list will come to me from most from most event organisers okay. and they'll say they'll uh. say here's what people have requested what can you do and I'll say well we can't get Concord um <laughs> <laughs> SR seventy one, we can't forwards, have a Harrier, yeah, so. <laughs> and we can't. So we'll do, we'll do that. We'll do that list and say, you know, and there aren't many Tomcats anymore, unless we want to go <laughs> to the Iranian embassy. Um, but you know, I look at that list and we say, look, here's what's realistic. Here's the ten airplanes that we can probably look at. And this one's yeah. going to cost you this, and this one's going to cost you this. And so there is that dialogue. And you know, and if somebody if somebody says, you know, why why is the display line such a long way away? And they ping that through to a social media channel or to a um to the event organizer then that'll end up with me and i can i can answer that question that's really interesting
1: yeah it is some sometimes i think with, with any sort of um bit it's not necessarily even a big event but just a sort of a big company you know a corporate social media you or you look at say um an air show you know you know that there's so many hundreds of people behind that brand um so there, sometimes is that impression with social media that you can put stuff on their page, but you think, well, it might not go anywhere because there's just so many people that it can be filtered around. Mm. So it's really, it's really good to know that stuff like that does actually get back to you. Yeah, totally. And you know, think- notwithstanding not all the really fan- <laughs> fan- <laughs> fantastic stuff like Concord or Harriers. And I
2: think you know, if you if you approach the React social media team over the weekend of the show, they're probably quite busy. But um, you know, b- before and after the event, most most of you know certainly my clients and my event organisers, um, they're all over social media and and their you know their um, info email addresses or whatever. Um, so yeah, you know ping stuff through and we um, you know we'll we'll try and answer it if we can.
0: Brilliant. Um, I think we're probably nearing maybe the end of of. I mean, I'm happy to keep talking. I think it's been absolutely fascinating, actually, to to to, to chat about this stuff because, like I said before, you know this it, even for us not wanting to make us sound ignorant, but it's 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 just a, an aspect of air shows that is just maybe not discussed very often or, or publicly demonstrated very often. Um, so it's been an incredible insight. I, I had one, one last question. <laughs> is there anything in particular that you've you've always, and we asked Tim Prince and, and Pete Ryuk and, and this as well, but has there ever been anything that you've particularly wanted to go after and get at an air show um, that you've either managed to get or haven't ever quite managed to secure or um what what would that be?
2: Well I, I think I I was lucky enough to to have it in Avalon uh years ago and we nearly had it at Fairford once and that was an F one eleven um dump and but or nice. an F one eleven display but with a dump and yeah. And um you know, I think that that was again that's you know that's on the Facebook list of fanciful <laughs> things that'll never happen again. But yeah, that and yeah, that was um, that would have been really cool to get that in front of a, yeah. a UK UK audience, uh, and I think we're we're massively sport here with with what we've got here in the UK and on our doorstep in terms of, of what's around us. Um, but yeah, some of those are really cool, and I guess the other thing um, is we, we had in in LA, This is not even an airplane, but this is as an air show performer, we had the Shockwave Jet Truck in in our LA. <laughs> and and I, and so we're there in and Abu Dhabi with Paul Bonham, you know, Steve Jones, um, Jonathan Whaley, you know, loads of really hardcore UK display pilots. Um, and, and me and all my team who are all jaded air show operators and everybody, every time this jet truck went out, we all just stood there like open mouthed and watched this thing. <laughs> and, and, and you know, all of us just have got a video from those from those days still out watching that thing. So that is, you know, as an air show act, if you've got a runway long enough, that is it's well worth looking yeah. at. Awesome.
0: We'll get in touch with Douglas Barter House then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Obviously the TSA Consulting, your website is TSA Consulting dot I don't know if you have any social media accounts that, that you people can either reach out to or you want to share some content with or Yeah, we've
2: got we got Twitter, we've got Instagram and we've got um uh, we've got a Facebook pages. Obviously, not much going on on any of those social media <laughs> channels this year. Um, but I've, you know, I very much hope that we can we can start, you know, pushing mm. content and stuff out next year. Um, and we've all mm. got something to go and do.
0: Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's, it's, been a it's genuinely been a, a fascinating chat. Actually, I'm not in, in no way exaggerating that. It's been it's been insightful. Great, been It really has perhaps um, um
1: perhaps assuming you know 2021 is goes as we all hope um perhaps maybe uh later on next year we, we could get you to do a, a sort of a an ask me anything yeah 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 that'd be that'd be really good i think
0: yeah i I agree actually i was thinking that earlier it would be people can put some questions that they've always had for airshow organizers and and maybe we can yeah get you on again yeah fab. hopefully Well, I hope the next few months are are nice and busy for you in contrast to the rest of the year and and, uh, everything turns around. Um, Yeah, if you've got any questions for Dave, please please do come on the forum and ask them um, because we know he reads the forum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If this is your first time listening to the podcast, then uh, please do share it around. Uh, We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, most other uh, podcast providers as well. Our social media accounts for UCAR, um, at UK Airshow Review on pretty much, a, well, Facebook, Twitter. I was going to say pretty much everything there, but we're not on TikTok and Snapchat and anything. So don't, yeah, that was... <laughs> yet. Uh, yet. If you want to read any of our reviews of Air shows that Dave has either been involved with himself or, or any of the others we've been to, then head to airshows.co.uk. And like I said, join the
1: forums and get involved at forums.airshows.co.uk.